Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Season 5, Episode 19 of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. This episode contains distressing themes, explicit language and descriptions of violence. This podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener caution is advised. When Sheila Stroud fled the scene with her two accomplices, she thought her problems were over. She could pay off her mortgage, keep her horses that she loved so dearly, and not have to worry about her troublesome ex-partner ever again. She thought that the blaze burning in a Cotswolds beauty spot would bring to an end the continuous arguments of an acrimonious separation and allow her to bask in the light of a prosperous future. In reality, her troubles had only just begun. The acorn of this case grew several years before the emergency services arrived at the picturesque cliff edge which overlooked the valleys of Gloucestershire. Discovered by torchlight in the dead of night, two charred bodies were not a sight the paramedics would quickly forget. The years leading up to this event would provide little if any indication as to what someone would do for a sizeable fortune and to be free of their past. In the 1980s, Sheila Stroud and Ivor Stokel had been in a happy relationship for many years. The successes in their personal lives were also matched by the flourishing business the couple ran together, T&J Grain Limited. It supplied numerous stables across Gloucestershire with animal feed. The couple had never married. However, their personal and business affairs were very much intertwined. Sheila Stroud was in her early 30s, and Ivor Stokel, her partner, or common-law husband, a label often used back then, was only a few years older. With the funds from their blossoming business, they planned to purchase a bungalow in the village of Staunton, close to the city of Gloucester in the southwest of England. 
from the historic docks and breathtaking cathedral to the country's most inland port and the lush green fields that stretch as far as the eye could see. The location could be pulled directly from a postcard. Surrounded by such beautiful scenery and not far from the hustle and bustle of a city that was seeing a great deal of regeneration, Ivor and Sheila decided to buy the bungalow property called Linalan. What's more, the land included a small stable and paddock where Sheila could care for her horses. Everything seemed perfect. From the outside, the couple could not have wished for more. But all fairy tales must come to an end, some sooner than others. Tracks had already started to make themselves known, but someone would reappear in Sheila's life that would be the spark to ignite this tragic state of affairs and change the relationship she had with Ivor, and not for the better. Mark Evans, a friend and former boyfriend of Sheila's, moved into the property she shared with Ivor. Evans, in his late twenties, was a man that had made some poor choices in life. He had several run-ins with the law but was now looking for a place to stay. Although T&J Grain Limited had been a successful business throughout much of the 80s, as the decade drew to a close, profits started to fall and funds were not as abundant at the bungalow property. So Evans offered some money to pay for his lodgings. Sheila's answer to the unravelling turmoil was to find solace elsewhere. How long it had been going on is difficult to say, but one day Ivor would come home unexpectedly to find his partner in the arms of the lodger. Fast forward to the middle of 1991. Ivor and Sheila had gone their separate ways. Ivor was now a factory worker for an engineering company and had found a new partner, Pauline Lation, who was in her early 40s. He was happy again, and Ivor wanted to move on with his life. An image of the couple which was published soon after the events that would unfold in November 1991 pictured them together. They were smiling, unaware of the fate that awaited them. The bespectacled diver dressed in a smart suit and tie can be seen putting a loving hand on Pauline's arm. He was no longer a director at the business he had run with Sheila. However, they had still not fully untangled their financial affairs. He was yet to receive his share of the savings the former couple had built up together. This included his percentage of the bungalow. Sheila would have to either buy Ivor out of the home or sell the property to which she had grown quite attached. She didn't want to move. After all, where would she keep her horses? Unfortunately for Sheila, the animal feed business, which had been remarkably successful, was now failing to turn a profit. She could barely keep up the mortgage payments on the home, let alone buy her former partner's share of the property. Earlier that summer, Sheila had agreed that she would pay over £20,000 for his portion of the bungalow and the adjoining land. But where was she going to find the money? She was stuck between a rock and a hard place, and as autumn was drawing to a close, Ivor was asking where his money was. The acrimonious separation wasn't making life easy. But rather than simply let go of the lifestyle to which she had grown accustomed, she found an alternative solution to her problems through the television, or more specifically, a film called Fighting Mad. Released in 1976 and directed by Jonathan Demme, who would go on to win an Academy Award for directing The Silence of the Lambs, the film includes a scene in which a couple are assaulted, force-fed alcohol and put in a car which is driven off a cliff edge into a quarry. Both their lives are lost to the flames, 
In the film, the murders are labelled an accident by the authorities, and the culprits who are after the family's land are under the assumption that their plan has worked. However, they did not account for the protagonist whose brother and sister-in-law were murdered. He seeks revenge. Riding a motorbike with a baby in tow, he tracks down the men responsible and ends their lives armed with a crossbow. Broadcast on Sky Television, it was alleged Fighting Mad inspired the planned demise of Ivor Stokel and his new partner, Pauline Lation. Sheila was of the understanding she would gain access to a financial windfall if Ivor died, as they had taken out a joint insurance policy which would pay out almost £150,000 if one of them were dead. While their relationship had broken down, she was confident the policy was still active. She saw Ivor as a thorn in her side, which needed to be removed and fast. Also, and coincidentally, they knew that Pauline Lation was learning to drive. If the couple were to perhaps crash their car and die in a tragic accident the police would likely think it was Pauline's poor driving skills that led to their untimely end. Like in the film Fighting Mad, Sheila began to envisage the couple veering off a cliff and dying in the fiery wreckage below. And she wasn't the only one watching the film during that early November who would be willing to do whatever it took to get their hands on a substantial amount of money. After Sheila had sat in front of the flickering television screen with Mark Evans, discussing the practicalities of going about ending the lives of two people, they wondered what they would do next to go about enacting their plan. Evans knew someone who could help them, and with a portion of the insurance payout, £30,000 to be exact, this would buy the services of Norman White. In his late twenties, White had been employed by Evans as a labourer, but was now out of work and looking to make a quick buck at any cost. Now they had the manpower. They planned where they could take the couple. They knew just the spot. The isolated location, Barrow Wake, just north of the village of Birdlip, was around 20 miles southeast in the Cotswolds. It overlooked the valleys of Gloucestershire. There had been several car accidents in the area where drivers lost control of their vehicles. One cliff edge was almost 200 feet. But how could the gang abduct Ivor and Paulie? They decided the most straightforward way was to invite them over to the bungalow under the pretense that Sheila would make good on her promise to buy Ivor out. He would need to be there to finalise the paperwork in person, something that would have proved too complicated to do over the phone. Ivor was already insisting to Sheila that a contract was needed to ensure that his share for the bungalow would be paid by January 1992, otherwise the property would have to be sold with or without Sheila's approval. She was hoping Ivor's eagerness to cut the ties from his old life so he could build a new one would be the very thing Sheila could use to lure him to his death. Throughout autumn 1991, Ivor Stokel had an uneasy feeling. He felt he was being watched. Someone driving a white BMW appeared to be following him wherever he went. So, fearing for his safety, he reported the sighting to the police. A separation was playing on his mind, but when he received the news that Sheila wanted to meet to discuss the finalisation of the payment for the bungalow, which would see the last connection he had to Sheila severed, this would allow him to move on with his life and start a new chapter with Pauline. 
on the evening of November 14, 1991, two weeks after Sheila had watched the film that would inspire the horrific events. Ivor travelled to the Air Balloon public house in Birdlip, where he met Sheila. His new partner Pauline had been at the wheel of her Vauxhall Viva, labelled with learner plates. She had been under the instruction of Ivor. They met Sheila Stroud sometime around 9.15pm. Sheila suggested they should return to the bungalow so they could discuss matters in more detail. Ivor and Pauline agreed, unaware of what would happen next. When they arrived, Sheila offered the couple a cup of tea as she planned to finalise the particulars of the paperwork. As Sheila put down the drinks, a man dressed in a wetsuit and a hood burst into the room holding a knife. He began a brutal assault on the unsuspecting couple. Neither Ivor or Pauline had any idea who the man was, but he was joined by Mark Evans, a man Ivor knew only too well. The blows rang down on Ivor and he was thrown to the ground. Pauline's jumper was pulled over her head as she was kicked and dragged into a separate room. Sheila appeared with a rope and a horse bridle. The assailants used these items to restrain their victims. This will teach you to shit on me, Sheila Stokel said, as Norman White's foot was holding Ivor's head to the floor. You could hear Pauline screaming hysterically through the walls of the house. Ivor and Pauline, who were by now bloodied and bruised, were carried outside and thrown into the back of Sheila's pickup truck, where they were restrained so they couldn't escape. Unable to move, they then heard the engine of a second car. It was Pauline's. Sheila was driving the pickup truck with Norman White in the passenger seat. Mark Evans followed behind in Pauline's Vauxhall Viva. In the dead of night, they were to be driven to a spot where the trio planned to kill them. On the way, their journey was interrupted several times. Norman White would periodically get out and check on the captives, and on one occasion they stopped to get some petrol but this was not fuel for the car. When they arrived at Barrow Wake, the abductors made sure it was deserted before Pauline and Ivor were dragged from the pickup truck and set upon. They could see the distant city lights of Gloucester, and they knew no one was coming to their aid. Ivor was left with a fractured skull after he was struck with a hydraulic jack. Pauline was also hit on the head with a stick, however she could not tell which of the three attackers swung the object. She overheard Mark Evans threaten to blade her. Ivor, who appeared to be unconscious, was lifted up and shoved into the passenger seat of the Vauxhall Viva. Pauline, who was still semi-conscious and dazed, was forced into the driver's side as she pleaded for her life. The smell of petrol filled her nostrils. The inside of the car had been covered in the liquid much like the outside. The front of the vehicle was saturated in an accelerant and the Vauxhall was positioned close to a cliff edge. Sheila's pickup truck was parked directly behind it. The engine of the pickup roared into life. Sheila Stroud watched as Mark Evans shouted and threw a lit match towards the Vauxhall. Due to the copious amount of petrol, a simple spark would have been enough, but as the lit match found its target, the car burst into flames. Not even seconds would pass before the Vauxhall began to inch forward, although its engine hadn't been turned on. It was being shunted forward with Ivor and Pauline trapped inside. The pickup truck at the rear of the Vauxhall was propelling it forward. The fireball quickly began to pick up speed as it traversed a steep grassy slope. 
It would only need to travel 30 yards before it reached a sharp drop. In the darkness, White, Evans and Stroud were mesmerised by the flames as the Vauxhall plunged towards the ground, crashing past several large rocks and boulders, hitting the verge below before stopping upside down as the fire took hold, engulfing everything in its path. Coming to their senses, the trio quickly scrambled back to the pickup truck and fled, celebrating on the journey back to Gloucester. Sheila Stroud dropped off Norman White and Mark Evans, then wiped down the fingerprints from the vehicle. The canopy of the pickup truck covered in a huge amount of forensic evidence was disposed of, and efforts were made to disguise the damage to the front of the pickup truck. Now all the gang had to do was wait for the insurance payout under the belief that all their troubles would be over. Shortly before 5am, visitors to the bungalow came sooner than Sheila Stroud was expecting. However, it was not someone to tell her about the death of her ex-partner and how she was due a financial windfall. It was the police, with the news that Ivor Stokel was not dead. Hours earlier, a cry of flame ho came from Mark Evans echoing through the night. As soon as the Vauxhall Viva had been set alight, it was pushed towards the cliff with Ivor and Pauline still inside. The vehicle was engulfed in flames as they felt the rear of the car being shunted forward by Sheila's pickup truck as the Vauxhall began to tumble to its final destination. The searing heat from the flames had burned Ivor and Pauline's clothing to their skin. Their hair was singed, and the dashboard of the car had all but melted. Before the vehicle finally came to a stop on its roof, Ivor, a slim-built former rugby player who was six feet tall, was still conscious. He managed to loosen his bonds that were securing his hands. The heat had likely played a part. As the culprits had not moved the driver's seat forward, which Pauline would have done if she was driving, this allowed Ivor the space to point his feet towards the driver's side door over Pauline's lap. In agony from his injuries, as he covered his eyes from the white-hot flames, he attempted to kick open the door. But it would not budge. He tried again with the same result. During a third and final effort, he kicked with all his might and the door swung open. In less than a second, Pauline fell out of the driver's side door. Ivor also managed to quickly climb out of the passenger side, but neither of them were aware of what was going on or if their partner had survived. Both passengers had managed to free themselves from the burning wreckage of the speeding vehicle and crawl to safety as the car finally stopped upside down, where it continued to burn brightly in the pitch black night. What happened next was nothing more than a coincidence. The light of the fire just so happened to attract the attention of two passers-by who thought the fireball might be a UFO. As the couple went to investigate, traversing the rocky terrain, they saw a silhouette in the darkness. It was certainly no alien, they knew that much, but in the dark of night they could not tell who it was. Their features were almost unrecognisable. The woman's torso, her hands and her neck were scorched beyond comprehension, and her facial features were lost in a haze of charred black ash. The bystanders scrambled to raise the alarm. A 
as officers from the Gloucestershire Constabulary arrived at the scene with paramedics and the fire service. They saw the upturned vehicle. The burning wreckage illuminated the beauty spot known as Barrow Wake. Aid was given to Pauline. Her clothing was burned to her skin, her face was black and bloody and her hair had been lost to the flames. She was shaking uncontrollably. It was only when she spoke that officers realised she was female. Pauline was pleading for help. Spotlights began to cut through the darkness searching for Ivor. It wasn't long before they found him. The leather reins and horse bridle used to restrain him were scorched to his skin. He was gasping for breath with a rope still around his neck. What was left of his burning clothing was smoking. Some areas of his body were almost charred to the bone. As he tried to shout, help me, the words were virtually unrecognisable. His lungs had been seared by the hot air that he was forced to breathe as he tried to free himself. Unaware that Pauline had already been found, Ivor told officers that he thought she was murdered. From an intensive care unit in Cheltenham General Hospital, doctors fought to keep their patients alive, but they were concerned due to the horrific damage both of them had endured. No one knew if they were going to make it. Ivor was given a one in ten chance of pulling through. But he did. Including the damage to his lungs, Ivor Stokel suffered 30% burns to his body and head. His partner Pauline fared worse. She almost lost an arm with burns covering 40% of her body. The skin on her scalp was all but destroyed. They were alive. However, the couple would face years of painful reconstructive surgery. Ivor and Pauline were kept in the hospital for several months before being discharged. Back at the scene of the attempt on their lives, Pauline Lation and Ivor Stokel relive the moments when they thought they would die after they were tied up and shunted over a 200-foot cliff in a burning car. A fireball, police said, it really was a miracle they survived. Both suffered terrible burns which will leave permanent scars when Ivor Stokel saw the extent of In the early morning of November 15, 1991, police arrived at Ledbury Road Crescent in Staunton to arrest Mark Evans. His partner Sheila Stroud was taken into custody an hour later. Stroud and Evans appeared before Cheltenham magistrates only a few days after the foiled murder plot. Norman White would also be arrested after he voluntarily handed himself in at a police station under the instruction of his solicitor. The trio would slowly turn on each other, although the varying and detailed accounts of that night and the lead-up to it would finally be heard in front of the jury at a Crown Court when the defendants were each charged with multiple counts of attempted murder. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. This episode of They Walk Among Us is brought to you in association with Centair. Ever entered a seemingly perfect space only to feel like something was missing? That's where Centair comes in. With over three decades of experience, Centair leads the scent marketing industry, scenting resorts, retail outlets, event spaces and more, partnering with major brands like Westin Hotels and Snap Fitness. Chances are you've already encountered their fragrances firsthand, and now Centair is offering you a luxury fragrance experience in the comfort of your home. Visit Centair.com to explore their online store and infuse your spaces with unforgettable scents. Centair diffusers are sleek and fill your space with vivid fragrance for up to 300 hours. And the Centair app lets you schedule your fragrance and control your intensity right from your phone. What's more, all of Centair's more than 60 fragrances are phthalate-free, cruelty-free, safe for families and EcoVad is certified sustainable. Differentiate your space with scent. Try luxury home fragrance trusted by the pros by going to centair.com and using promo code Among Us for an extra 25% off your first order. That's promo code Among Us for an extra 25% off your first order at centair.com. Just under a year and a half later, a three-week trial was held at Bristol Crown Court in March 1993. Sheila Stroud, Mark Evans and Norman White all pleaded not guilty to two charges of attempted murder. The prosecutor Alan Jenkins described to the six women and six men of the jury how Ivor Stokel and Pauline Lation were abducted and assaulted at knife point before being forced into a car that was set alight and driven off a cliff. Jenkins told the court that the defendants had planned to make the deaths look like an accident, so they could claim on Ivor Stokel's life insurance, which they assumed would be paid out to Sheila Stroud, his former partner. The policy set up in November 1990 was still active. After Ivor had met Pauline Lation, he left the bungalow in July 1991, and he was initially told by Sheila that she would be buying him out, although the money never materialised. At one point, the life insurance policy did cover the mortgage on the bungalow where Stroud was the original beneficiary. Although unknown to her, she had ceased to be the intended recipient of the policy payment as a result of Ivor's instructions in October 1991, a month before an attempt was made on his life. Jurors were transported from the courtroom in a white coach to the spot where the Vauxhall Viva was found. The jury descended the steep grassy verge. The crime scene was reconstructed with a car positioned in the same location it would have been before it was pushed over the cliff edge. Tape was placed on the ground, marking the direction the car travelled before it burst into flames. As the judge accompanied the 12 members of the jury, each of the defendants observed the spectacle for around an hour from separate taxis under police escort. The jury were also played around 20 minutes of the film Fighting Mad, which it was alleged inspired the defendants to take the action they did. 
Sheila Stroud and Mark Evans had seen the film while they were visiting some friends who lived nearby. Both of the victims took the stand. Ivor and Pauline still bore heavy scarring which would remain with them for the rest of their lives. They were receiving treatment for their burns at French A Hospital near Bristol, a process that was clearly excruciatingly painful. The couple spoke about their ordeal and how they managed to escape from the car. Pauline Lation told the court, I told Mark not to do it, on my bended knees. He forced me into the car and got beside me. He stank of petrol. It rolled forward a bit and he jumped out. The next thing I knew, the car was in flames and going over a cliff. I was screaming hysterically, and Ivor was kicking the door trying to open it. When it opened, I somehow rolled out. I was burning and rolled in the grass to dampen the flames down. The pain was so fierce, I was numb. Ivor Stokel, who was wearing protective clothing over his numerous skin grafts, showed the court the myriad scars that covered his arms. He spoke of the cries he heard from Pauline. At the time, he played dead after being struck violently on the head. He said, The door was then slammed shut, and I realised Pauline was being put in the driver's side. I said, Don't worry, love, they aren't going to kill us. I knew the best way was to keep calm. I knew there was a slope and I knew there was a hell of a drop at the end. I assumed that was what was going to happen to us. As Ivor continued to speak, his voice broke. There was a whooshing noise and she screamed. The car was engulfed. The windows were closed. I smelt plastic burning and put my hands to my face. I was gritting my teeth and screaming my head off. Pauline was doing the same. I knew I had to get her out. I shall never forget it as long as I live. Mark shouted, flame ho. In the Vauxhall, Ivor Stokel had swung around and kicked at the driver's side door several times. Soon as it opened, Pauline fell out of the car and Ivor managed to escape as the blaze in the interior of the vehicle continued to burn brightly as it crashed down the cliff edge. The sequence of events played out over no more than ten seconds. Assuming his partner had died from her injuries, Ivor hid behind a wall, worried Sheila Stroud and her two accomplices might return. Mark Evans would have an opportunity to put forward his side of the story. In his first interview with police following his arrest, Evans told detectives that he was not involved. In fact, he was asleep when the incident was said to have occurred. It was not until a subsequent interview, the fifth to be precise, he admitted that he knew of Sheila's plans, a recording of which was played to the jury. Evans claimed that Sheila was, as he understood it, having problems with Ivor regarding the separation. So on November 14th, along with Sheila, Evans picked up Norman White, who was going to threaten Ivor verbally. Evans alleged that when Ivor and Pauline arrived at the bungalow, White produced a knife and attacked them. The defendant was insistent that he had no knowledge a weapon would be used. The attack was not meant to be physical. When taking the stand, Evans told the court that he was scared and felt he could not intervene as Ivor Stokel and Pauline Lation were attacked, bound and subsequently left with grievous injuries that covered a third of their bodies. At one point, Evans was instructed by his co-defendant Norman White to help tie up Pauline and Ivor. 
he said he did not do what he was told. He claimed he never meant to cause them any harm. Evans did admit that they stopped for petrol, but he said he did not know what it was for. Again, he claimed this was under the instruction of Norman White. Evans alleged that he even tried to loosen the ropes bound around Pauline Lation. In his version of the events, Evans said that he did not shout, Flame Ho, but instead, Woe Flow. That was his way of indicating to Stroud and White that he did not want to be left behind. He also argued that he did not say, Blade Her, when they were back at the bungalow before the fire, but Kirka. Evans said this was a word used by travellers and meant no. Like Mark Evans, Sheila Stroud took the stand and also blamed Norman White for the abduction and attempted murders. During her first interview with the police, Stroud said that on November 14th she left the bungalow alone around 11pm and travelled to her sister's. After detectives pressed her for more details in a second interview, Stroud maintained that she was not at the air balloon pub and nobody she knew attacked either her ex-partner Ivor or Pauline Lation. But like Evans, after she conferred with her solicitor, Stroud's story changed, and now it was Norman White who was the person responsible. Stroud claimed it was not only Pauline and Ivor that were terrified at the end of the knife held by White, but along with her partner Mark Evans, she too was terrorised. According to Stroud, it was White who forced them to carry out the plans. She said he was a drug dealer who had scared her into driving her pickup truck to the beauty spot where Ivor and Pauline were almost killed. She claimed to be overwrought stuck in the middle of what was going on. Stroud was insistent that she was not a willing participant in the events that saw Ivor and Pauline needing surgery. A recording of Stroud's interview made only a few days after the incident at Cheltenham Police Station on November 18th was played to the jury. It lasted for almost an hour. Norman was ruling my and Mark's lives, she said. I was petrified. I did not know which way to turn. But no harm was ever meant to come to Ivor and Pauline. As Sheila Stroud gave her evidence, she claimed that she did not know there was any such insurance policy on Ivor's life. She also stood firm that she had never seen the film Fighting Mad. Although she was now admitting that she had met Ivor Stokel and Pauline Lation at the Air Balloon pub, the reason why they returned to the bungalow was that she had forgotten some of her paperwork. It had nothing to do with a plot to have the two of them murdered. Stroud said that Norman White had been at the address earlier, however she thought he had left. According to Stroud, she was just as surprised as them when he burst into the room with a knife. She claimed that she shouted at White not to hurt them, and she most certainly did not say, This will teach you to shit on me. Still, Stroud could not explain how Norman White restrained both victims on his own. But it was, according to Stroud, all White's doing. Stroud did admit to wiping down the vehicle after the attempt was made on the lives of the victims, though she was adamant she did not bear any strong feelings to end their lives. There was, however, some evidence to the contrary, in the form of a note which was penned by Sheila Stroud. She made reference to wanting to end her own life, and a written threat was made to Ivor Stokel. The note listed the precise date on which the prosecution's evidence indicated that Norman White had first been approached as a possible hitman. Interestingly, through the court case, 
it was revealed that Stroud had lent Norman White her white BMW, a car similar to the one that Ivor Stokel claimed had been following him prior to the incident. Norman White would later claim that Stroud had bought the vehicle for him. Norman White admitted that yes, he had dealt drugs and had previously sold some to Mark Evans. But the last time he was with his co-defendants was the night before the crime took place. White flat out denied his involvement and told police that it had nothing to do with him. White claimed he had been drinking and smoking cannabis at his cousin's. He awoke in front of the television during the early hours so he could not have been one of the people responsible. From the stand, White told the court that he had been asked by Sheila Stroud and Mark Evans to attack Ivor before a subsequent request was made to end Ivor's life. White admitted that he had agreed to assault Ivor Stokel for a few hundred pounds, but when the discussions began concerning murder for a considerable amount of money, White claimed that he refused. While the victim said that Sheila Stroud and Mark Evans were involved in the attack, the man holding the knife was wearing a hood. The jury at Bristol Crown Court also heard about Norman White's criminal convictions. He had spent time in prison for assault, five times in all, which were predominantly committed against his girlfriend. White's partner had asked him why he had seen Stroud and Evans so frequently at the home they shared on Cromwell Street in Gloucester. The street was also home to Fred and Rose West, who were arrested for their crimes in 1994, a year after this trial. White told his girlfriend that while he had been asked to kill Ivor Stokel and Pauline Lation, he did not want to be involved. At the end of March 1993, the jury arrived at a verdict on the charges for each of the defendants. It took three hours to reach a unanimous decision for each charge. Today, the jury found Sheila Stroud and her lover, Mark Evans, guilty of attempted murder, along with the hitman they'd hired, Norman White. They'd hoped to collect a big insurance payout on Ivor Stokel's life. The mental scars have almost healed. Both those still require months, even years, of hospital treatment for the burns inflicted in what the judge described as this truly horrific crime. Ivor and Pauline held each other when they heard the verdicts. They had sat watching the proceedings from a packed public gallery. During sentencing, the judge, Mr Justice Swinton Thomas, described to the court that it was Sheila Stroud who was the mastermind behind the crime, with her partner's friend Norman White acting as the hitman and Mark Evans as the muscle. Each was as culpable as the other. Mr Justice Swinton Thomas considered a life sentence for each of the defendants, telling them it was tempting given their actions. However, he ruled they would be facing at least 18 years behind bars before they could be considered for release on licence. They received 18 years for each count of attempted murder and would serve both concurrently. The judge told the trio, Your crime is in the higher echelon of wickedness. In this court, we have not heard one word of remorse from any of you for what you did that night. The gang seemed uninterested in the verdict as the judge highlighted the lack of contrition they had shown throughout the trial.
outside the court following the verdict, Ivor Stokel and Pauline Lation were interviewed. Describing to reporters the bitterness she felt about what had happened and her feelings towards the people responsible, Pauline said, Maybe they are locked away, but they have still got a certain amount of freedom. We have no freedom because we are in pain every day. Along with Pauline's painful injuries, she continued to wear a wig or a headscarf to cover some of the scars that would never fully heal. In addition to his excruciating wounds, when Ivor was struck on the head, he lost the hearing in one of his ears and suffered from vertigo. Further grim reminders of what had happened that night. Shaving was almost out of the question as it was so painful, and simply trying to hold a razor was problematic. They'd actually knock me on the back of the head to try and knock me out. And I just thought at the time the best thing to do was to play dead. You're gritting your teeth and you're actually just screaming because of the pain. And then, then suddenly I think your whole body goes into shock and the pain just ceases. And if I had a gun in me, I'd have just shot them straight away. But I suppose I'm not really the sort of bitter type, you know. Ivor did not seek revenge and was of the opinion that the time the perpetrators had to spend in prison would be worse than any retribution he could enact. Searching for a silver lining in such a horrific crime, Ivor explained that there was an unexpected side effect that came with the assault. It must have been the bang on the head one of them gave me before pushing me into the car. I used to be short-sighted, but now I don't need to wear glasses. Pauline said the couple intended to marry like an ending to a fairy tale. You know, you've got the wicked people and, you know, we are still together. I really thought, you know, this was it. A year after the trial, Pauline Lation and Ivor Stokel became husband and wife. While they needed extensive plastic surgery and would never be able to work again, they focused on their recovery and built a new life together. Burns surgeon Andrew Bird, who had operated on both Ivor and Pauline, gave Pauline away at a private ceremony in Gloucestershire. So where are we now? Following their convictions, Sheila Stroud and Mark Evans sought leave to appeal against both the outcome of the trial and the length of their sentences. Between the end of March 1993 and beginning of October 1994, they argued their case all the way to the Court of Appeal. Counsel for Mark Evans suggested that the judge misdirected the jury. It was claimed using the word perhaps, the jury may have misunderstood the judge, which subsequently could have led them to believe there was a different argument to the one the defence counsel had presented. Also, counsel for Sheila Stroud highlighted that at no point did she do any physical harm to either Ivor Stokel or Pauline Lation. This was something the couple had conceded. On that night, as far as they knew, Stroud did not participate when they were being attacked. There was a reference in the judge's summary of the case how Stroud had withdrawn from violence. It was contested that the verdict was unsafe. Lord Justice Rose, Mr Justice Moreland and Mrs Justice Steele reviewed the arguments. Concerning Mark Evans' claims that the judge was misleading in his summation of the case, the appeal judges read the summary word for word. They found it was clear that any use of the word perhaps was in reference to a submission made by the defence counsel in which it was postulated that there was a conspiracy between Sheila Stroud and Norman White which did not involve Evans. The members of the court believed that the judge could not be faulted in any way 
when dealing with the matter. Evans' argument that the verdict was unsafe was rejected, and his appeal was dismissed. As for Sheila Stroud, the three appeal court judges acknowledged that Stroud did not physically assault either of the two victims. However, that said, their findings did prove there was a solid foundation on which the jurors could decide that she readily partook in the attempted murder of two people. Quote, It was she who had arranged the meeting at the air balloon for discussions which, as it appears, never took place. It was she who took the victims the considerable distance from the air balloon back to the bungalow where White was laying in wait for them. It was she who, if the jury accepted the evidence, at a time when Stokel was pinned to the ground by White, said, This will teach you to shit on me. Whatever exculpatory evidence Stokel gave in relation to Sheila Strout, he was wholly unshaken on his recollection that that had been said. It was she who drove the pickup truck with the two victims trussed up in the back, and when White, the man of whom she said she was terrified and on more than one occasion during the course of the journey climbed out of the passenger seat and went around the back, she waited behind the wheel and in control of that vehicle until, once more, he climbed into the vehicle and they continued their journey. She was present throughout the horrific events at Barrow Wake, and having seen them, she drove White and Evans away, and having done so, cleaned the vehicle to remove White's fingerprints from it. Like Mark Evans, Sheila Stroud would also not be granted leave to appeal against her conviction. Finally, in regards to the appellant's sentences, Lord Justice Rose, Mr Justice Moreland and Mrs Justice Steele felt that while the participants undertook different roles in the events of that night, Stroud and Evans each played their part along with Norman White. Based on the evidence, while White carried out the majority of the physical attacks to the victims, Evans helped bind them and carry them to the pickup truck. He also purchased the petrol. Sheila Stroud was the instigator and the organiser. It was ruled the judge did not err when he made his decision and was well within his rights to conclude that no distinction should be made between the three responsible for the horrifying events. The appeal against the sentences for both Stroud and Evans was denied. The whereabouts of the three individuals found guilty of attempted murder Sheila Stroud, Mark Evans and Norman White is not currently public knowledge. However, enough time has passed for them to have served their minimum sentence and be released, walking the streets among us. Thank you for listening. A special thanks to our new Patreon producer, Claire, and everyone who supports us on Patreon. For more information on this episode, please see the show notes or visit our website, theywalkamonguspodcast.com. are on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping 
and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.